we are doing a message called Standing by Grace, or Standing in Grace, you could say. Esther 5, we continue to move verse by verse through the book of Esther, and we have this incredible moment where if you've been with us, you've kind of held your breath since the last time we were together because Esther has decided to take a stand. Perhaps she has come into royalty for such a time as this, but she still has to wrestle with her humanity. She still has to wrestle with whether or not she's going to take a stand. And it's so cool to know that God allows us to wrestle with our faith when we're having when we're at a crossroads, when we're having to make a difficult decision, when we maybe sense God placing us in a divine opportunity, but we still have to wrestle with whether or not we're going to believe, whether or not we're going to stand. Those are all very human things, and I think God, I know God, allows us to wrestle with our humanity and to wrestle with our faith, and to even say like the dad in Mark chapter 9, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I can sense your hand is here. I can sense you opening doors. I can sense you, you know, giving me courage, but I still have that part of my humanity. You know, I, I know what I should do, but I don't always feel like I have the power to do it. And that's where the, the idea of grace comes in. Let me just explain. So there's two words that I want to put before you theologically just to think about it going into this message, okay? And they're, they're the same word, but they're in Hebrew and Greek. Okay, so in Greek, the word for grace is charis. It's spelled C-H-A-R-I-S, charis. It's a beautiful word that speaks of the benevolence of God. It's the goodness of God. It's grace, we often say, is unmerited favor. But charis has a different meaning. It, it has a theological, what we would call soteria, soteriological meaning, which means it has to do with salvation, that we're saved by grace. It's a gift of God. It's not by works. So we receive it by faith. So that's one meaning. But grace also has a secondary meaning in the New Testament, and it's the idea of power. So once you're saved by grace, God gives grace. And in this sense, it would be like this verse. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Now, Jesus said that to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. Paul's obviously a believer He's obviously a mature believer. He's an apostle. He gets divine, you know, scripture from the Lord. And yet he was going through something. And when Jesus uh, addresses his situation, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. So that in this secondary sense, grace is power. And you could say it's, it's power from God to you. It's power from God to you to help you to stand. Uh, grace could be pictured in the armor of God. It could be pictured in this, the infilling of the Spirit of God. So that's the Greek word, charis. Now, in Hebrew, the word for grace or favor is ken. And it sounds like the name ken, but it's actually spelled C-H-E-N. And if you would, wanted to pronounce it as a Jewish person would pronounce it, you'd have to go ken, ken. Right? And so you can get on your computer and look it up. How do you pronounce grace in Hebrew? Ken. And you got to have a little bit of that, whatever that is, phlegm, I guess. You got to have some extra phlegm. <laughs> anyway, that's grace. And tonight we're going to see a woman who stands by grace. And anytime you're going to make a stand for the Lord Jesus in any situation you're in, whether you're being tempted to give in to uh, a sinful situation, whether you're 
in a spot where God's been asking you to share your faith with somebody and it's intimidating or maybe you got to take a stand in terms of a, you know, maybe there's a moral issue going on in your family, at school, at work, and the Lord's calling upon you to stand. Well, that's kind of what tonight's about, standing by grace. Father, as we open your word, may you open our hearts to your truth. May you open our hearts to the power of the Holy Spirit to the grace that is not only saving grace, but it is grace that is keeping grace, and it is grace that will help us to stand. It will give us the strength, and I pray that Esther's uh, stand tonight will inspire us to be brave, to lean into you for the power we need to live out what you've called us to be. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's look at verse 1 of Esther 5. Now it came about on the third day, that Esther put on her royal robes and stood. Let's pause there for a second. The third day is the third day of the fast. Remember, this is where the Feast of Purim comes. And if you're familiar with the Jewish feasts, you know, we all know about Passover and perhaps you've heard about Hanukkah. Well, Purim is a, is a feast for Israel that comes from the book of Esther and it's inspired by Esther's story of standing by grace and standing for her nation. And here the third day is the third day of a fast which is uh, talked about in the previous chapter. If you go back to chapter 4, look at verse 14, we'll revisit a few of these uh, famous verses. Mordecai says to Esther 4.14, If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And of course, her father's house is actually Mordecai's house. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty or come into the kingdom for such a time as this, 4.15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. She said, go assemble, 16, all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way, so a three-day fast. And thus I will go to the king, which is not according to the law, can't come unsummoned. And she says, and if I perish, I perish. Chapter 5, verse 1 picks up this idea of the three-day fast and tells us now we have fast-forwarded to the third day. It's the third day of the fast. Now, if you've ever fasted before, maybe you've fasted a meal or two, maybe you have even done a multi-day fast. And a multi-day fast is challenging enough. Getting past the first day is hard. Day two is hard. You can kind of hit a stride uh, when you're into a multi-day fast, when, when your body just kind of accepts it and other things kind of kick, kick in phys physiologically. But Usually, if I've ever fasted before, I'm at least drinking water. So at least I have water, and I can, if hunger pains are hitting me really hard, I can guzzle a bottle of water, and that can kind of, you know, at least uh, keep them at bay for time. But imagine not eating or drinking for three days. That's, that's difficult. That's, that's, that's a serious fast. And it's the third day of the fast, and that's what Esther has experienced. She has uh, not eaten or drank for three days. It's the third day. And on that day, Esther put on her royal robes and she stood. I kind of got my title from verse one where Esther takes her stand. She stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room 
opposite the entrance to the palace. Now, I don't know if we know for sure if the king facing the entrance into the, the, the uh, palace proper could see her, if there was some lattice work, or if we imagine like a big door that led into the, the royal throne room and that Esther had to pause at the door and, and kind of, you know, collect herself. And you could, you could feel the, the tenseness of the moment, the, the defining moment. Esther has said that she's going to stand, but now it's time to stand. It's one thing, you know, to put your name on a list, to say, okay, I'll do that. Uh, to, to say, okay, I'm willing, but now when the moment comes, that's, of course, the big moment as to whether or not you're going to stand. We're told in Ephesians 6 that we are, we are to do everything to stand and there to put on the full armor of God. One author puts it this way, the transformation, the transformation of Esther's character from a person of weak character to one with heroic moral stature and political skill proceeds from that defining moment when she decided to identify herself with God's covenant. Esther assumes the dignity and power of her royal position only after she claims her true identity as a woman of God. It was on the third day. In the Midrash, the miracle of deliverance through Mordecai and Esther is compared to events in the lives of Abraham, Jacob, and Jonah, which also involved three days. If you're interested... You can look up Genesis 22.4, 31.22, and Jonah 1.17. In all three cases, major Bible characters come to a crossroads on the third day. It's on the third day in Genesis 22 that Abraham lifts up his eyes and looks and sees Mount Moriah afar off and realizes that he's going to go and offer his son Isaac. There's a situation in the life of Jacob that has on the third day when he's running from his uncle Laban. And Jonah 1.17 says it's on the third day that Jonah prayed. And that's when the, uh, he was in the belly of the sea monster for three days and three nights. And he comes out of the fish. And if I was just to say to you, having studied the Bible as you guys have for many years now, m many of you, three days reminds you of what? The resurrection. And so, in some way, scholars would argue here, and this comes from some Jewish sources as well, that some sort of transformation has happened to Esther in the process of the three days. From the time that she's confronted, she says, hey, if you go to the king unsummoned, you die. To Uncle Mordecai, or uh, Cousin Mordecai, I should say, saying to her, you know what, if you cower back, if you let fear win the day, don't think that you can hide somewhere in the palace and you're going to get by. And I want you to imagine for a second if Esther did not respond, if Esther said no, if maybe she said yes, but then when the moment came, she cowered in some room or decided I'm not going to go or whatever. How would the story be different? I don't know for sure. We've got another story, uh, you know, Jonah who does run from God, right? And God turns him around and all of that. But we just don't know for sure. And I want to ask you to consider your story tonight. Because some of you are at a defining moment in your walk. Some of you are at a crossroads. Some of you have just started to get serious about Jesus Christ. You've just decided to really identify yourself with the new covenant, uh, with being a Christian, with saying, you know what, I'm not going to walk in, in two worlds, or I'm not going to sit on the fence anymore. 
And your story is going to change based upon whether or not you're all in. We are in a prayer meeting just uh, tonight before we came out here. And uh, one, of our, one of our leaders had come across a Gallup poll. And he said, you know, uh, this is something he mentioned as he was reading the stats in front of us. That uh, they, they've interviewed a bunch of professing Christians and found that only 12% of professing Christians are really serious about letting the word of God change their life in some substantial way. Did you hear that? That's 12%. That means 88% of the respondents are not serious about God's word changing their life in some substantial way. If you're wondering what's going on with Christianity in the United States, can I say to you that right there is the issue? It's, it's Jesus saying to us, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Now, it is true that we all wrestle with our humanity, and it is true that sometimes we fail to do what we even want to do because of the wrestling with the flesh and the world and the devil. We all know that. But it all starts with a willingness to be willing. And if you're not even willing, if you're polled in some Gallup poll and you say with the 88% others, no, I'm really not open to some significant change happening in my life by the authority of the Word of God, then we got a problem, friends, right from Jump Street. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We got a problem right there because if you come in with that attitude, then you might as well put a deflector shield around yourself and just, just admit when you walk through the doors that nothing's going to really penetrate you on any deep level. Now, knowing you the way that I do, I know that's, that's not you. I know you come in here and, you know, I know a lot of you personally, and I know you come in here and you buckle your seatbelt and you say, okay, here we go, right? Here, here comes the word of God, right? And now, now I can decide what I want to do. Now, now I can decide if I'm really going to be serious about it, you know, bringing change into my life. It doesn't mean you're not going to wrestle with it. It doesn't mean that you're not going to struggle. It doesn't mean you're not going to go through times when, you know, you're a brand new Christian and you're wrestling with even knowledge of what you should do. But the writers, the Jewish writers, would talk about Hosea 6-2, this three-day period, and they would say that they would, they would grab some of these thoughts in the Midrash from these ideas. And here's what it says. It says, Hosea 6-1 and 2, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He, was, he has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. I would submit to you that Hadassah or Esther, her Persian name, Hadassah, her Hebrew name, has had a resurrection of sorts. And her resurrection has taken place in one of the most difficult moments of her life where she's decided to stand and she's only going to stand by the power of God. And if I were to call you guys up and ask you to share your story about when you became a Christian and when you really got serious with the Lord, I think some of you might paint it in those kinds of terms. There was kind of a resurrection in my life, a change. You know, to, to resurrect literally means to stand up, right? It's the standing up. And spiritually speaking, that's what we're called to do. To, we're new creations in Christ and we're called to stand. To, to go from lifeless to full of life. That, that's the Christian life. Now, who gave Esther the power to stand? Of course, 
It's God. They're in the midst of a fast, implicit in a fast. Prayer is not mentioned, as I mentioned last week, but they're, surely they're praying. Surely Esther's been praying for three days as she's been fasting. And I'm sure she's got her doubts. I'm sure she's been struggling with the reality of standing at that door right outside the palace and wondering if her life is going to end. She's a, still a, a relatively young woman. She may be, just be in her 20s, maybe even in her early 20s at this point. Isn't it amazing how a lot of the major heroes in the Bible were pretty young when they were called to do some very major things? Um, archaeological evidence, by the way, shows in two base reliefs that they found, they excavated from a place called Persepolis, which is in the Persian area. They, they found reliefs or uh, these, these uh, drawings, if you will, of a Persian king, very likely King Xerxes or Ahasuerus, seated on his throne with a long scepter in his hand. These are in these ancient reliefs. An attendant is behind the king, behind him seated on his throne, and it's a soldier holding a large axe, which affirms the biblical account that if you went to the king unsummoned or you did something that displeased him, there was a man ready to chop your head off. This is no joke. This is what this woman was facing at this moment. Was going in there and not knowing if she was going to live or die. She said it in her own words, if I perish, I perish. And that was very real. That's not just some bedtime story. That's not just some once upon a time. This is historically, archaeologically verified. And these kings, you never knew what they were going to do. They weren't all the most stable people on the planet. They weren't. There was, you know, in some of the most famous world leaders of history, emotional stability was not their long suit. Just because they conquered lands and peoples and were military geniuses doesn't mean they were stable in the rest of their lives. You're just hoping that Xerxes had his coffee that day, you know, before you came in unsummoned. And so she puts on her royal robes. And she stands. Isn't it interesting? It's ironic. Her people are mourning, but she dons the robes of royalty. You know, they've been mourning and fasting, but she has to dress in the regalia of the queen. And by the providential hand of God, she is the queen. Even though she's a Jewish young woman who would have no right, no authority, not even be in the vicinity to approach this Persian leader. God has made her the queen of Persia for such a time as this. Don't forget it. The only reason she could put on the royal robes to begin with is because God providentially has led her to this point. And I'm sure she can retrace the steps, maybe even after that three days of fasting, and say, I've gotten here simply by the hand of God, and I'm going to wrap myself in the royal robes. And we are wrapped in the robes of royalty by the power of Jesus Christ. He grants us those who mourn in Zion. He gives a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Turn to your right. Go to Isaiah 61. That's what I just quoted, but I want to show you the rest so you can mark it. You're going to go to your right. Uh, pass up the Psalms and Proverbs. Keep on going a little bit more. Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61. 
Let's pick up the account at verse 8 because this is beautiful and it kind of goes with the, the mourning motif and then the royal robes and what God gives us. And this is something that Jesus quoted when he was reading from in the synagogue. And here's what it goes on to say, 61.8. I just quoted, quoted verses 1 through 3. For I, the Lord, 61.8 of Isaiah, love justice. I hate robbery and the burnt offering. I will faithfully give them their recompense and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Then their offspring will be known among the nations, their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them will recognize them because they are the offspring uh, whom the Lord has blessed. Ten. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. Turn back to Esther chapter 5. Esther has donned herself in the robes of royalty. But I want you to see that she's wrapped herself in another sense in the power of God. And every time you spend time in prayer, every time you open up the word of God, every time by faith you put on the armor of God, every time you ask the Lord to fill you with his spirit, to give you his eyes and his heart, you're being wrapped with the royalty of the power of God. In fact, we have in us the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. The power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Now would to God that we would tap into that more. Would to God that we would clothe ourselves with the robes of royalty more. Yes, we are clothed in salvation. That's the difference between the grace words. We are saved by grace positionally right now. We've got it, not by works. But there's another kind of clothing. we got to put off the old and put on the new. That's something we do after we get saved. We've got to put on grace. We've got to clothe ourselves in the garments of grace to fight this battle. The battle against our own flesh. The battle against the devil. The battle against the world. The battle against ourselves. The spiritual warfare that goes on. You could sense at this moment Deep breaths being taken outside the palace, you know, the doors of the palace. And I'm sure Esther's kind of doing something like this. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Hold on a minute. I need about 10 more of those. I'm sure she had to muster up the courage. I'm sure she was deep breaths, prayer, perspiration, heart palpitations. Oh, Lord, help. Oh, Lord, be my strength. I've donned these royal robes only because you put me at this place. And there she is. She's in front of the king's rooms, 5-1 of Esther. The king was sitting on the royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. Behind him is the man with the axe, a Persian Median soldier ready to do the king's bidding. She breathes deep. And it happened when the king saw Esther, the queen, standing in the court, that she obtained favor in his sight. Wow. I don't know about you, but 
That's the moment right there, right? That's the moment where you're either going to live or die. And the king extended to Esther the golden scepter, which I mentioned to you is pictured in the relief that they dug up from this area, which was in his hand. And so Esther came near and touched the top of the scepter. See, what really mattered is whether the king extended the golden scepter. If he did, you lived. If he didn't, you did. <laughs> or you're going to get banished, minimally banished. Uh, in the VeggieTales version of the book of Esther, you know I had to go there, right? I think at the end of the story, when Haman is found out, he is sent off to the island of perpetual tickling. No, 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 no! And there he is, and someone's got a feather, and, <laughs> and they're tickling him. The island of perpetual tickling. No! Anything but that. I used to do that to my kids when they were younger. I would do Mr. Drill. And I'd get them on the ground. Of course, I was strong enough to hold them down, which I'm no longer able to. <laughs> And I'd raise up one of their arms, and right under the armpit, I would go, da, 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 da. and they'd be kind of laughing, and then it would turn into some crying, <laughs> and a little bit of laughing. And I would say something like this, did you take the last Snickers bar? Mr. Drill. <laughs> anyway. Now they have underarm hair and all that. You can't do that anymore, anyway. Sorry, guys. <laughs> They're like, why does he do that to us? Anyway, I don't put this stuff in my notes. Sometimes it just comes to me. Anyway, the king extended the golden scepter. Some of the commentaries I was reading, from the older commentaries say that Esther came and kissed the top of the scepter. I don't know if that's the case. It just says that she touched it. And uh, it, it, it made me think of a story of the woman with the hemorrhage of blood. Remember what she's saying, if I could only touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. And then Jesus says, who touched me? And she reveals herself in that moment. And uh, the, the, the king here has held forth the golden scepter. Uh, it's, it's a sign of acceptance. And once you touch it, you become safe in the presence of the king now. You're, you're secure. He, he's given you favor. He's given you a sign of grace, and you touch it, and he extends the scepter, and once you touch it, you receive the grace. And there's commentators of old that have said, even though this is a pagan king in a pagan court, there's a picture of the gospel. Because God extends his grace, he puts out the scepter of grace to us, but we've got to receive it by extending the hand to take it. You see, you're saved by grace, but that's through faith through the channel of faith. God extends the golden grace, the, the scepter to us, but we've got to receive it. We've got to touch it, if you will. It's, it's as though God's saying, my hand goes out uh, all day long. I stretch out my hands, he says of Israel, to a disobedient and obstinate people. And Israel wouldn't come because of unbelief. They wouldn't believe in Jesus. Well, here's Esther, and she has touched the scepter. She's identified with her people, but she's also the queen. 
It reminds me of Genesis 6-8 when it, the Bible says that Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, finding favor here is the Hebrew word ken. <laughs> or we would just say ken. C-H-E-N. She found grace in the eyes of the king and that's what's happened to you if you're a Christian. You found grace in the eyes of the king. You're able to approach now a throne of grace that you might receive mercy and help in time of need. And you could imagine that there were probably other people in the court. There were seven that were always with the king in the inner court. And maybe they were saying something like this. How dare her? What does she think she's doing? She's unsummoned, unsummoned, unsummoned. Maybe the guy with the axe is sharpening it. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to get to work today. Who does she think she is? Well, she is the queen. But remember, she hasn't been summoned for 30 days. It's been a month since the king has called for her. So she doesn't really even know where she stands with him. But she found favor in his sight. The word for favor or grace in the Hebrew picture language means the fence to protect life. And once she touched the scepter, she was, she was safe. Grace pr protects us from our failures and from our sins. Grace robes us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The golden scepter has gone out and Esther was granted life. She wasn't going to die that day. Esther knew for certain, says one writer, she had obtained this favor when the king seated on his throne extended the golden scepter. He extended it to her and she came near. She touched it. Esther's execution or banishment would have been an ominous uh, sign had the king not done that. It would have meant that the Jewish people were probably going to perish as well. She was kind of a representative or an intercessor or a mediator, if you will. But he did extend it, and by virtue of that, grace was going to go to the people as well. On the third day, in the throne room of the king, Esther was granted life instead of death. Mercy and grace instead of judgment. Such famous uh, Christian exegetes like Martin Luther associated this beautiful picture of grace with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Grace extended and grace received. He associated the king's scepter with the gospel of Jesus Christ in his exegesis of Psalm 2.9. You will rule them with an iron scepter. He writes, quote, This is the rod before whose tip in the hand of Joseph, Jacob bowed, and whose point the blessed Esther kissed. Grace was extended, and grace was received. I think it's hard for the modern Christian to understand the love of God. But God the Father so loved the world that he gave his Son. It's amazing to think of the great love with which God has loved us, that he extended the golden scepter in sending Jesus Christ into this world, the King of kings and Lord of lords died and bore our sin and shame that we could walk into that throne room and be accepted and be wrapped in grace. As you study the book of Hebrews, you will find uh, five times the phrase draw near. In the book of Hebrews, for example, it says we are to draw near uh, to the throne of grace to find mercy and help in time of need. We're to draw near to our great mediator. He ever lives to intercede for us. We're to draw near with confidence and boldness to the throne, not of judgment. We go to a throne of grace. 
And each time you come to that throne, brothers and sisters, a golden scepter is extended because you're in good standing with the king. You're already royalty. He has decided, little flock, to give you the kingdom. You are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor height, or depth will ever separate you from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. The scepter stays extended, the gold of royalty to us. Jesus said, you're going to even sit on my throne you're going to be part of the judging of angels. There's going to be a millennial reign of Christ where we'll be kings and priests because we've been washed in the blood of Jesus. Somebody please get excited. The golden scepter, man, is out. Just touch it. Do you realize that a lot of people are going to end up in hell because they simply won't reach out a hand to receive the gift of the king? They're going to actually say, no, I don't want it. I don't want his favor. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to go another way. I'm going to go through another door. I'm going to wrap myself in my own righteousness. It's not going to work. So the king said to her, you can imagine how much she exhaled in these moments, right? Touching that scepter. Oh, thank you, Lord. And the king said to her, what's troubling you, Queen Esther? And what is your request? Isn't that a beautiful response? Of all she could have played in her mind over those three days of fasting, can you imagine how many times she replayed the scenarios? Okay, this could happen. The door may creak when I open it. How tall is the guy with the axe? I don't know. I hope he's having a good day. Maybe she sent him chocolates ahead of time, you know, make sure he's in a good mood. How is the door going to creak? What will the faces look like when I first, you know, emerge out of the shadows? What's the king going to say? Possible response A, banish her to the island of perpetual tickling. No! That's, that's a light thing, right? She dies! Or the king may be won over by his attendants. No, you certainly must take her life. She has no right to come in here. Can you imagine how much sleep she got in those three days? How many scenarios she replayed? How, how many times she wanted to have ice cream just for comfort food and couldn't eat anything or even drink? Man. To imagine, do you think in her mind, one of the things she replayed is the king saying, what's the matter? What's troubling you? Something like, are you okay? You know, when we play scenarios in our mind anticipating a big day, we usually think in negative terms, right? We usually make it bigger and more negative than it will ever be. But, of course, she had reason to, to be concerned. NIV says, what is it, Queen Esther? Obviously, the king knew there was some urgent need because why would she risk her life coming, this enormous risk, unless there was some big pressing need? What's troubling you? Do you know when you come to Jesus, that's essentially what he says. He says, cast your burdens to me because I care for you. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I, I'll give you rest. Do you know when you come to the Lord, the Lord could be seen as to say to us, what's troubling you? 
what's on your heart. And that's okay for you to be in a position before your king who has extended the golden scepter to say, Lord, this is what's troubling me. My heart is heavy. I'm going through this. I'm concerned about this person. I need your help. I need your power. I need your grace. I need your love. And the good news is, he says, cast all your cares to me because I care for you. I love you. And we hesitate sometimes to give God all of that. And in fact, he says, what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it will be given to you. Can you imagine that? Man, Esther had to be going, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. She didn't know Jesus at this point, but thank you, Lord. At least didn't know the name Jesus. Up to half the kingdom is hyperbole, according to the scholars. It's something that ancient kings used to say, not that they would give you half their kingdom. It wasn't like a divorce court in the state of California. <laughs> That was a little bit of free humor, but it not, might not have been funny to some of you. So anyway. But it was a way of saying, whatever reasonable request you put before me, it'll be done. In Mark chapter 6, it's what Herod said to the daughter of Herodias. They think, I think, uh, they think her name was Salome. And she did the seductive dance before King Herod on his birthday. And he says, okay, he was pleased by her dance. And he says, Ask me what you want up to half my kingdom. I'll give it to you right now. And what did she ask for? The head of John the Baptist on the platter. And she got it. And this is what's going on in this setting. It's a way to say, any reasonable request you put before me, it'll be done. Now, if you're Esther, wouldn't you be tempted to say, Haman's head on a platter right now. That's what I want. And would she be wrong to ask for that? I mean, Haman had gotten the king to sign a decree to exterminate all the Jewish people. Now, what would you do if the king gave you that blank check, carte blanche, door open? Well, here's what she says. She says, if it pleases the king, may the king and Haman, really, <laughs> come this day to the banquet that I've prepared for him. You mean, girl, you had an open door and you told him to come over for dinner? Are you kidding me? Now you're reading the story. Maybe you're a Jewish person reading the story and you're like, no way. She didn't just do that. She had an open door. What's going on? Is this a stall or delay tactic? Was Esther afraid to speak her mind? Did she let fear take over? Well, there's more to come. But I'll tell you this. I think Esther is being very, very strategic. I think there's a reason that she didn't Belt it out right there. Think of some reasons. She's in the middle of the court with all these other people around. If she says to the king, uh, there's a terrible decree hatched by Haman and you need to reverse it now. The, it's become the law of the, the Medes and Persians and it's, it's irreversible from other things that we've read. He's going to have to redo a decree that he has his signet ring put on that's gone to all the provinces. In addition to that, Esther is going to have to confess that she's Jewish, which she's been hiding from him for over five years. She's going to have to tell him, and I'm a Jew, and it's going to cost me my life if you let this go on. He's going to have to undo a royal decree. He's going to have to face Haman, face all the royalty of his court, undo something, admit it was a mistake, 
uh, you know, yield to his wife's request, even though she's been lying to him. There's a lot going on. And so she decides not to do it right there and right then. And I believe that was very, very wise, and you could even say providential. Sometimes waiting for a strategic moment, even to say something to someone, is the best thing to do. And so she invited them over to a banquet. Seems like this book is filled with banquets, huh? <laughs> banquets that go on everywhere for multiple days. And can you imagine if Esther was cooking? Man, she had to be so hungry. <laughs> Those potatoes never look so good. You know, when you haven't eaten for a while, it doesn't matter what you eat. You're like, that's the best thing I've ever had in my life. Well, the king said, bring Haman quickly, that we may do as Esther desires. And so the king and Haman came to the banquet which Esther had prepared. She cooked up a storm, apparently, and there they went. By the way, here's another note. If Esther had jumped the gun and presented her request to too soon, the king's memory of Mordecai's saving act when he revealed the plot against him wouldn't have been revealed because it happened, that I think, that next night. Nor would the gallows have been constructed on which Haman poetically, poetic justice, dies on. See, God was working out his plan, even the timing, but he was working out in the very normal mode of life. There's no lightning bolts, there's no red seas parting, there's no fiery furnace and deliverance by a shiny being, none of that. In the everyday affairs of life, God can work. And when you pray and fast, it doesn't mean that you're not also planning. They're not mutually exclusive, brothers and sisters. Nehemiah prayed in the book of Nehemiah, and he planned. And when you're praying and fasting over something, it's okay to think through, because uh, God's given you a brain, and you're supposed to love him with all your mind, and your heart, and your soul, and your strength. Think about how to best do something. And as they drank their wine at the banquet, the king said to Esther, second time, what is your petition? It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Even to half of the kingdom... It shall be done. You couldn't have risked your life just to have us over for dinner, girl. What's going on? And so, so Esther answered and said, My petition and my request is... <laughs> you ready? <laughs> if I found favor in thy sight, in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition, do what I request, may the king and Haman come to dinner tomorrow night as well. I paraphrase. May the king and Haman come to the banquet, which I shall prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king says. Some you know, people reading this have to be thinking, what? Why did she delay again? How many opportunities does this girl need? Swing the bat! <laughs> Those of you who have a baseball background will know what I'm saying. <laughs> Strike one! <laughs> Strike two! Your little, le little leaguer steps out of the box. You're like, swing the bat! <laughs> because three strikes and... You're out. Come on, man. At least take it off your shoulder. Wink at the pitcher. Do something. <laughs> How many of you remember this, the movie The Field of Dreams? Did you see that movie? There's the, the, the doc, you know, gets a chance to play. And so uh, he, he's staring down a big league pitcher on the Field of Dreams. And right before he throws the pitch, he winks at him. And, they, and the pitcher throws the pitch right at his head. And he's like, 
And so Shoeless Joe Jackson says, all right, he doesn't want to walk you, so where do you think the next pitch is going to be? And he says, low and outside, but it could be in my ear. <laughs> and he goes, then look low and outside, but watch out for in your ear. <laughs> Again, that was not planned, but anyway, there you go. So she says, notice her humility, very opposite of what the king would remember about Vashti. He says, if it, she says, if it pleases the king, if, if I found favor in your sight, come back tomorrow. She, Esther's uh, carefully worded response suggests that a second banquet, says one author, was always her intent. Why? She hadn't seen the king for a month. She's probably reestablishing the relationship with him, reintegrating herself into his uh, like, if you will, at least re-ingratiating herself so that they can connect again and she's building up some steam there's a reason behind all of this and Haman went out that day glad and pleased of heart but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate that he did not stand up or tremble before him Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai Mordecai in chapter 3 verse 2 would not bow down to Haman that's where all this started and Haman was filled with poisonous anger is the Hebrew Anger that was seething and furious and indignation and poison and rage and wrath. And Haman controlled himself in the moment. He, he may have said something like this, Oh, he'll get his. The decree's already gone out. Maybe he made a gun as he walked by. It's coming. They didn't have guns back then, so maybe he went like this. For those of you who are listening by audio only, that was an arrow that I just made. <laughs> Maybe he said something like the wicked witch said in The Wizard of Oz, I'll bide my time, my pretty. And he went to his house and he sent for his friends and his wife. He was, of course, angry. His wife is Zeresh. This is now we're going to find out how Haman deals with his bruised ego. He gets his wife and his friends, and he's going to do a session of what we might call, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and darn it, people like me. <laughs> Some of you will remember that from an old Saturday Night Live. Anyway, people like me, don't they? Then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches. He's talking to his wife and his friends. He said, Something like this. Do you know how much money I have? The number of sons. We find out later he has 10 sons, which, made, which was uh, advantageous in the ancient world. Every instance where the king had magnified him, all of his promotions, his business cards, how he'd been promoted above the princes and the servants of the king. Can you imagine his wife sitting there? I wonder how many, how many times he did this. And by the way, I have 10 sons. His wife's like, I know, honey. I know we have 10 sons. And I've been promoted above all the other princes. And! <laughs> See the friends in there. Man. How many times do we have to hear these same stories? You see, Heyman, who was from the 70s, was the kind of man that had to draw attention to himself. He needed his ego stroked, and he's the classic definition of a fool. Pride and arrogance and the evil way, the perverted mouth I hate. When pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble, there's wisdom. 
Proverbs 16, 18, and 19 says, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before stumbling. It is better to be of humble spirit with the lowly than divide the spoil with the proud. And Proverbs 29, 23 says, A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. I don't know how long it went on, but he went over his accomplishments with his friends and his wife. Okay, Haman, yeah, you're a great guy. It'll be okay. And Haman also even said, even Esther, this takes the cake. Hold on. Put your seatbelts on. The queen let no one but me come with the king to the banquet, if you only knew why, which she had prepared. And tomorrow I'm invited to be with her and the king again. Yet all of this does not satisfy me. Every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate, I say to myself, I was having a good day until I saw him. You guys leave. I just want to talk to Zeresh, my wife. <laughs> he gets to me, honey. Every time. You would think once he could bow. It doesn't matter that I'm, uh, my career's gone through the roof, that I'm probably the second most powerful person in Persia. This Mordecai, he gets under my skin. Nothing else will satisfy me. In fact, I think the Rolling Stones probably got it from here. I can't get no satisfaction. And I try. And I try. Honey, I try. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, isn't it amazing how someone's idol, they, you could have so much good going on in your life, but if you make something your idol, if that one thing doesn't fit with your criteria, the way you want it, the way you think it should be, you'll let everything else that God has blessed you with go down the tubes because the one thing, and what is it with, you know, the, the rich and wealthy people? Just another million, just one more deal, just one, it's always one more thing. You see, Haman really was never going to be satisfied because he didn't find his satisfaction in God. A man's pride will bring him low. Now, what Haman needed at this point was some good, healthy, biblical, godly counsel. What he needed is somebody, and of course, it's hard to feel any empathy for Haman, right? He's horrible. Haman, why would you feel empathy for this guy? But do you know somebody like this at work, at school? They're not a Christian. They're a disaster. They have a lot of success, but they're constantly telling you about the one thing. Yeah, I know all that stuff's good, but that's one thing. And maybe they break into the Rolling Stones song for you. I can't get, no, I try. And those are the people that you find it hard to even feel sorry for. But they may be the people that you need to speak to the most about what's truly going to satisfy. And Zeresh, his wife, all his friends said to him, Here's, here's an idea. Have a gallows 50 cubits high. Make, make the gallows 75 feet high. This roof is 30 feet, give or take. Make it 75 feet high. Here, here's, here's, here's how you'll feel better. Have a gallows made in the morning. Ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it and then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. <laughs> Man, you look like you're really having a bad night. 
We've got a great idea for you. If this guy's getting under your skin, there's only one solution. Make a huge, tall gallows. They believe that the gallows was kind of an ancient cross and people were actually impaled on them. Not just hung, but impaled. Make it 75 feet high. Hang them high! That's an old movie. Hang them high! This will make you feel better. Put the guy on display for all to see everywhere. 75 feet high. And the advice pleased Haman. And so he had the gallows made. Can you imagine him? Sitting back there, yeah, yeah, that's good, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go and nail that, nail that, yeah, that's good. And do you know, the very gallows that he planned to hang the Jewish leader Mordecai on, he ends up hanging on them himself. Poetic justice. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, the innocent one, came to hang on a cross. He had no business being there in the sense of earthly justice. He was completely, he was the most innocent person that's ever lived without sin. And they crucified him. And you could say in one sense, I should have been hanging on that cross. But we stand in grace because of the gospel. Would you pray with me? Father, <clears throat> as we think about this picture of the gospel. We can see it as we look a little deeper. And Haman's plan to kill Mordecai, had Haman just simply took the high road, loved his neighbor as himself, he, he would have maybe enjoyed a, a good life. But his own evil plan found him out. And he died on the very device he made for another. Lord, you took a Roman cross, <clears throat> one that was intended to kill and destroy, and you turned it around and exploited it for your good purposes. The king of glory died on that cross to extend a golden scepter of love and grace to us. And as we look at this story, there's a lot of application points, but I think the biggest one is to know that we're saved by grace, we're kept by grace, and we're empowered by grace. And anything that we're going to do that's good and for your glory will be because of your grace. So Father, we come before you in humility, asking that you would just move, refresh our hearts, give us fresh boldness, clarity, gratitude. Extend your grace and mercy to that person who doesn't know you yet. If you're that person and you've not touched that scepter, if you've not received Jesus as your Lord and Savior and King, cry out to him. Something like this, Lord, I believe you died on that terrible cross for me. Pray it if it's you. I believe you rose from the dead. I receive you as my Savior and my Lord, my King. Please cleanse me, forgive me, wrap me in your righteousness. Make me acceptable in your sight. Thank you for loving me and dying for me. If you're a backslidden Christian and you need to come back to that place of walking strong with the Lord, His grace is here for you. The scepter is extended. Just 
Just receive it. And for you, dear saints, just know that his grace is a continual flow in your life. Just open your heart and let him give you exactly what you need for today and tonight.